0: Tonight, I'd like to speak about some of the applications of mindfulness and some other factors involved as we practice Vipassana meditation. To me, it's interesting that in English, the word mindfulness is a bit prosaic. It's really quite a ordinary, humble-sounding word. It doesn't have quite um, the quality that the words wisdom evokes or the word compassion evokes. You know, we think of mindfulness and it sounds a little humdrum. But it's interesting that this very humble word, mindfulness, points to that quality or that factor in the mind that the Buddha says, leads to liberation, leads to awakening. So it's not just an ordinary mind state. This is from the very beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, where the Buddha says Bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha, of suffering and discontent, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbāna, namely the four satipatthanas, the four foundations of mindfulness. So it's a powerful factor that is being developed in this practice. It's the quality that leads us to enlightenment. It might be interesting tonight just to look at some of the very specific ways we apply mindfulness and other supportive factors on the path. Now, the first insight of insight meditation is seeing how often our minds wander. Is there anybody who has not seen that yet? I think one has simply to sit down... In the very first 10 minutes of one's meditative career, and one learns that. You know, there are thoughts and images and fantasies and memories and plans, and they come, they arise in the mind, they carry us away. We hop on these trains of association to completely unknown destinations. You know, we don't know we've hopped on the train, we don't know where the train is going, and somewhere down the road, We get off the train, sometimes in a very different mental environment. As we watch our minds, and how frequently they're carried off, it reminds me somewhat of going to a movie theater, a very special movie theater, where they change the film every two minutes, or every one minute, or every 30 seconds. So the first step on our journey, on our meditative journey, is calming the mind and collecting the attention. We need to do this in order to develop any clear seeing into what is really going on. So we give the mind a primary object. Could be the breath, the movement in walking, could be the sitting and touching. And we train the mind to stay steady. We train the mind to stay on it. Now this training, of calming the mind and collecting the attention has two important aspects, which are the basis for developing an enduring and stable concentration. And these two factors are aiming the mind and sustaining the attention. In Pali it's Vitaka and Vichara. And these are the first two factors Of the first jhana. And so these are the qualities that allow us to develop a stability, a steadiness of mind. What does aiming the mind mean? You know, we hear that word, aim the mind. If when you sit or you walk and you simply hope, we even have an initial intention to be with the breath or a step. We find that the lasting power of that is about two and a half seconds. You know, we can have the hope that it lands on the breath to aim the mind and to stay with it. But that's really not enough because it's the meditative equivalent, and here my great scientific knowledge is going to be manifest. This is the meditative equivalent of the second law of thermodynamics, which has to do with entropy. And put very simply, it is the understanding that systems, any system, will tend to disorder over time. Systems tend to disorder. And one explanation, there are many many explanations for why this happens. But one explanation uh, struck me because it had such a meditative equivalent. So one understanding of entropy, the fact that things tend to disorder, happens because the possibility for disordered states are much greater than the possibility for ordered ones. As an example, if you throw the pages of an unbound book up in the air and let them fall, it's very unlikely that those pages are going to come down in the proper sequence so you can read the book, because the possibilities for them to fall in a disordered state are so much greater. There are so many places other than the breath and other than the step that the mind can go, as we see from watching our minds in all the places the mind does go. So we see it takes a certain effort of intentionality to aim the attention so it actually lands where we want it to be. Just hoping it's going to land usually does not do the trick. So aiming the mind, it's like developing hand-eye coordination. We're developing mind-object coordination. You it's like aiming a dart, aiming the dart of attention on the dartboard of the breath, on the dartboard of a step. So we aim, we have an intention of directing the attention to the beginning of a breath, to the beginning of each half-breath. As most of you probably know, the word in Pali for meditation is bhavana. And the meaning of bhavana, even though it's translated as meditation, the literal meaning of the word is causing to be developed. So, what we're practicing in meditation, we are causing certain factors of mind to be developed. That is what the practice is. When we aim the mind and re-aim it with each half-breath, so we're connecting again and again through that aiming with the beginning of the breath, we see very directly and for ourselves that the mind actually can be developed. Because aiming and sustaining is possible for us for half a breath. We have that capacity. Whereas if you come into the hall and sit down and have the intention, okay, I'm going to be with my breath for this hour. That's impossible. It's not going to happen that way. And so we get discouraged and we lose confidence. But if you aim the mind for a half-breath and sustain the attention for just that short duration, and then aim it again for the beginning of the next half-breath, the out-breath, we begin to see that, yes, this is something we can actually do, half-breath by half-breath, and that the concentration of mind actually begins to develop. So the second aspect of concentration, the first is aiming, vitaka. The second is sustaining the attention. Once we've aimed, once we've connected, we need to sustain or hold the attention on the object, even if it's for as little as half a breath. In this factor of sustaining, we can begin to explore the nuances of meditation. You know, we begin to see and understand meditation really as an art. sustaining the attention can take many forms. It can be as simple as resting in the knowing of the object. Right? We aim, and we connect with the beginning, and then we simply rest in the knowing of the feeling of the breath. We re aim, and then we rest in the knowing of the feeling of the out-breath. Very simple. If you see the mind wandering awful lot, then you can work with this sustaining in a little more directed way, bringing the attention in closer. So as we practice in this way, with right aim and steady attention for just a half breath, slowly the mind begins to settle down. Now The thoughts are still there, but they're softer. They're not so compelling. They don't drag us off for as long, and we begin to experience a certain quality of inner relief, right? of a certain quality of inner stillness. And at a certain point, vitaka and vichara starts to work by themselves, doesn't even require much effort. From this place of greater collectedness, when we're not simply completely lost in the wandering mind, We start feeling our bodies in a much more direct and immediate and intimate way. Now we might feel places of tightness or tension or vibration or heat or pressure. Sensations in the body that, in our more distracted state, we didn't even know were present. But as the mind gets less distracted, the awareness of the body and all of the many energies that are happening become manifest. As we pay attention to the range of sensations that we experience, the physical sensations, we begin to discern different kinds of painful feelings that may arise. You're sitting and you're feeling pain we need to have a certain discernment of what that pain is about, because one kind of pain is a danger signal. You know, if you put your hand in fire, you don't wanna just stand there burning, burning, burning. That sensation is saying something. <laughs> it's saying, take your hand out of the fire. There's the pain or discomfort of just sitting in an unaccustomed posture. You know, maybe sitting cross-legged Most of you are probably quite used to it by now, or sitting in a chair for long periods. But often, when we first sit in an unaccustomed posture, there's discomfort. And then there is the pain. I call it dharma pain. That is the unpleasant, painful, uncomfortable feelings that we experience, not because they're a danger signal, and not particularly because of the posture we're in, but because we're becoming aware of so many of the places of tightness and tension that have accumulated in the body and begin to show themselves. How do you know whether pain is a danger signal or a Dharma pain? I found over the years of my practice For myself, one pretty basic guideline that has been a reasonable, accurate predictor. And that is, if I'm sitting, and even if the pain, for whatever reason, is quite intense, but then I get up and I walk for a bit and the pain goes away, that kind of painful feeling has never been a problem, even if at the time it feels almost unbearable. Whereas if I'm sitting and there's pain, maybe in the knee or the back or wherever, I get up and that pain persists and it gets stronger in the next sitting and it persists in the next walking and you can feel it building over the day, sometimes that's saying, I'm straining too much. You know, that's straining the body too much. You need to readjust, ease the posture a bit. So that for me has become the guideline of this discernment. Not only do we begin to understand different kinds of pain, as our mind has settled more, become more aware, we begin to key into the different strategies our minds have developed in dealing with pain, in relating to pain. You know, it might be fear. Maybe that's the conditioned reaction. You're sitting, and pain begins to come, and the first response was, of fear. I can't bear this. I need to pull back. I need to change. That we're afraid of feeling it. Might be self-pity. You know, where we're just feeling sorry for ourselves. Might be doubt. Might be avoidance. Might be denial. One very useful feedback in meditation practice is the experience and the feeling of struggling. If you're sitting and struggling to be present, that is giving you some very useful information, which is that something is present which you're not accepting, because if you were accepting it, you wouldn't be struggling. So when you feel that sense of struggle, it can be very helpful to just settle back and say, OK, what's happening here? What am I not opening to? What am I not being with? I had an experience in my early years in Bodh Gaya when I was practicing. I was living in this little hut at the Burmese Vihara. It was really small. It was like seven by seven. Um, and it didn't have a door. It just had a canvas flap. No, in the opening. And I was sitting on my bed, meditating, and this cat wanders in and jumps into my lap. And I'm basically a dog person, not a cat person. <laughs> so the cat jumps in and, you know, don't want it there. So toss it out. About 10 seconds later, it comes right back in. Jumps up on my lap. I toss it out comes in again. I toss it out. There was nothing I could do, because there was no door. There was just this canvas flap. So this went on for about 20 minutes or so. The cat coming in, me tossing it out. Finally, I realized I have to surrender to this, because there's no way for me to keep it out. So finally, it took me a while to get to that place of acceptance. Cat comes in, plops down on my lap. I'm okay. It's okay. About five seconds later, it gets up and walks out. And it was such an example for me of how our resistance to something feeds what we're resisting. Our resistance is what is strengthening it. Our resistance is what is locking it in. So we need first just to see that sense of resistance or struggle or non-acceptance with whatever it is, whether it's physical pain or some emotional state. We need to be aware of the resistance, and often we are through that feeling of struggle, and come back, OK, let me be with this. Let me open to this. It's OK. Now, how often do we feel impatient or discouraged in our practice when the sittings are uncomfortable? You know, that there's, there's that loss of innocence which you I'm sure have all undergone already, that realization we have at some point that meditation is not all bliss you know, and that a good part of the practice has to do with being with unpleasant, uncomfortable feelings. But this is a very hard lesson. We know it intellectually. It's a very hard lesson to integrate fully. You know, how common is it to measure our sittings? If we sit and it's light and it's easy and it's comfortable, and then lots, lots of nice tingles, and oh, that was a good sitting, you know, and we can be sitting and there's a lot of pain and discomfort and unpleasant mind states, oh, that was a terrible sitting. We measure our meditation so often on whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. And, of course, that's not the measure of our practice at all. The measure is how mindful are we. There was a great Burmese master. His name was U Min. And he died not long ago, some, some few years ago. And he was old. I believe he was in his 90s. Uh, and he was reputed to be an he was like one of these very great beings. Uh, he, was, he was one of the, the Saidaus in Burma that Saida Pandita respected very much. So this is, this is from some of his teachings. He said, you have to accept and watch both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. You only want pleasant experiences. You don't want even the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is this fair? Is this the way of the Dhamma? I really like that. Is this fair? (laughs) We need to open in this really full way to the truth of whatever is happening in the moment, to the different sensations in the body. And this can lead to a very interesting meditative experience, which. Reveals a lot about The relationship of the mind and the body And that is the experience we can sometimes have of feeling mental pleasure Even as we're experiencing physical pain You know and to begin to discern the difference In the feelings the mind and the body at that time. Even as we're feeling discomfort or intense pain, the mind can be open, it can be peaceful, it can be clear, it can be steady. At one one point when I was practicing in Bodh Gaya, uh, in a time when I wasn't doing intensive practice, I was there, and I was walking into the, to the little village, you know, the bazaar, and just sitting at a chai shop with friends, having a cup of tea. And I was having a really bad headache, and Munindraji comes along, my first, my first teacher with whom I had been practicing in Bodhgaya, and he comes, and he joins us, and he says, how are you doing? And I said, you know, Munindraji, I have this really bad headache. And he looked at me, and he said, oh, I hope you are enjoying it. <laughs> And it's just the last thing in the world I expected him to say. But there was a Dharma teaching in that. Can we enjoy, so to speak, even the times of discomfort, of unpleasant feeling? When the mind gets very concentrated, and pain can be a very good object of concentration because it doesn't wander much, the mind doesn't wander much, it's possible to get extremely concentrated and even blissful in the experience of it. Years ago I was I was out in California visiting some friends and somebody kind of shut a car door on my finger and it was incredibly painful. You know, it just hurt so much and it was all night long. I was just with that intense intense throbbing. I didn't sleep at all that night and I was just watching I don't know why it didn't dawn on me to go like to the emergency room or something but it didn't I was just was going to wait until the morning so I'm watching this intense painful feeling all night and I went through the first period of really you know being reactive and thinking about the person who did it and all kinds of things but then finally you know all that left and I was just with the pain I was just with the throbbing And this was hour after hour after hour. It was amazing. Sometime in the middle of the night, my mind got so concentrated and so light and so clear that there was this amazing mental joy in the experience of the painful physical sensation. So it just shows what's possible in terms of bhavana, in terms of mental development. And ways of using the unpleasant or painful physical states and developing really quite steady and strong concentration, happy states of mind. Mindfulness of body sensations opens the doorway to a very fundamental level shift in our meditation practice. And that is we begin to distinguish very clearly through awareness of sensations, the difference between our concepts about experience and the experience itself, the awareness of the bare elements. So for example, it's the difference between thinking, oh my back hurts, oh my knees hurt, which is all concept, and the awareness just of the bare sensation of throbbing, of pulsing, of stabbing, of itching, of pressure, of tightness. Now why is this distinction important? Why not just be with that understanding, well my back hurts? This level shift from concept to direct experience is important. It's essential in terms of this path of awakening, because the concepts we use to describe experience don't change. We use the same word. "I have a back today. I had a back tomorrow. I'll have a back tomorrow. You know, I had a back yesterday. And so to the degree that we are viewing the world through the filter of concepts, We begin to, and do, live in the illusion of permanence. Because there's a certain permanence to the word. The word doesn't change. So we can have the sense, my back hurts, and it hurt yesterday, and it will hurt tomorrow. And yet, when we drop down from the level of concept with the right aiming, and we're really seeing and experiencing the elements that are happening, manifest as the different sensations that are arising. We see these elements, these sensations are changing extremely rapidly. There's nothing solid, nothing fixed, nothing steady at all. The sensations are in constant flux. And so this is what opens the door of insight into the three characteristics of impermanence, of unreliability, of insubstantiality, and so we need to train our minds right, to distinguish concept from direct experience. As we do this, you know, and many of you should sure have felt this already, we begin to feel the body not as something solid, not as something static but as being a fluid energy field. It's like looking through a microscope you know, at a whole new world. Begin to see the body, feel the body in a completely new way. It's not at all what we conventionally take it to be. So from a growing and the grounding and awareness of the breath, this aiming with each half-breath and sustaining an awareness of the body, mindful of both the pleasant and unpleasant sensations that arise. With this grounding in breath and body, we're then able to see and observe more clearly the inner and more subtle workings of the mind, we begin to observe, quite directly, our conditioned patterns and tendencies our patterns of thought, our patterns of emotion You know, the great gift of a meditation retreat is just the the chance to sit and observe our minds and we see our likes, our dislikes, our judgments, our desires Begin to see so clearly the inner commentary that's going on about almost everything. You know, you're standing on line for lunch. How many little comments flit through the mind about the person in front of you or the person behind you or the person you catch out of the corner of your eye? Or the endless self-judgments, you know, that proliferate in the mind such a deep and common pattern always evaluating ourselves judging ourselves comparing ourselves with others and sometimes it's about such ridiculous things you know in May and June I was sitting here at the forest refuge with Saida Upandita and my yogi job was veggie chopper so I was in the kitchen every morning chopping vegetables. And there was one other yogi we were sharing this job. So one day, the cooks gave me some carrots to cut. But they wanted to cut in a particular way. And I don't know whether this is just IMS language or, or general cook language. But they described it as you know cutting it in the pencil sharpener way, where you hold the carrot on end, and you just slice around the bottom you know, at an angle. So it kind of looks like a pencil being sharpened. OK, it wasn't that really, really that hard to do. <laughs> so I'm doing that. I'm slicing the carrots. And it was fine. So I finished that. And the next day, go in, and the cooks gave a whole bunch of carrots to my chopping partner. And they gave me some parsley to, you know, pull the leaves off the parsley. And the first thought in my mind, and not only the first, the second and third, <laughs> they didn't like the way I cut the carrots. <laughs> you know, I went on this whole trail. oh I'm not a good veggie chopper, you know, and that I've been demoted to the parsley. <laughs> and of course within didn't take too long just <laughs> to laugh at the ridiculousness of it all. But it it was just illustrative of the patterns in the mind. You know, just this pattern of self-judgment or this pattern of comparing. And of course, the quicker we see it, then it's not a problem. But if we don't see it, then we can. And often, it's about much more momentous things than cutting carrots. We can really get caught, you know, in a way of being that's very distressing. You we also begin to see more clearly all the projections we have about other people. Sometimes it's about the people who are closest to us. We're living in our projection of what they're feeling and what they're thinking and how they are, sometimes without really checking it out. And we live so much in projections about other people, people we don't know, but we create whole stories in our minds. You know, the, the... the very common phenomenon retreat of the Vipassana romance and the Vipassana vendetta you know, where the mind either is really attracted to somebody or really is, just can't stand somebody you know, and it's all just the mind playing itself out you may not have even met them or talked to them at all what becomes very obvious through this mindfulness of our mind and the thoughts that go through it is that we are not inviting our thoughts, for the most part. You know, we're not saying, okay, thoughts come. They just appear. But as our mindfulness gets stronger, we can have a crucial and powerful experience of seeing directly, not just knowing intellectually but experiencing directly the difference in our experience between being lost in a thought and being aware of a thought. Are you familiar with the difference? You know, when you're just lost and you're carried away, and then all of a sudden, at a certain point, the mind wakes up and we become aware that we're thinking. The thought may still be going on, but the difference between being lost in it and being aware that we're thinking is the difference between being asleep and awake. This is another of the teachings from Min, And this is a very important instruction. So don't feel disturbed by the thinking mind. You are not practicing to prevent thinking. What you are practicing is to recognize and acknowledge thinking whenever it arises. This is really important because so often we come into meditation practice with the notion, I shouldn't be thinking. And then we get into a struggle or a fight with ourselves or with the thought. You are not practicing to prevent thinking. What you are practicing is to recognize and acknowledge thinking whenever it arises. And so we want to develop that quality of attentiveness and mindfulness to pick up the fact that we're thinking as early as possible. Now, in this awareness of thinking, this um, profound investigation that can take place. And it has to do with the investigation or the exploration of the nature of thought itself. Not what the thought is saying, not the content, but it's as if we're holding the question, what is a thought? What is this phenomenon that happens, I don't know, 10,000, 50,000 times a day. It's happening so frequently, yet it's very rare for people to actually look directly at the nature of thought, of what it is. When we do this, some amazing insights begin to happen. We see very clearly How when they're unnoticed, when we're unaware that we're thinking, these thoughts have tremendous power. They are running our lives. Thoughts are coming. Go here, go there, do this, do that. Feel this way, feel that way. I call them little dictators of the mind when they're unnoticed. And what's so amazing is that when they are noticed, when we are aware that we're thinking, we see that the thoughts, as a phenomenon, are little more than nothing. They're just these tiny little energy blips in the mind that come and go so quickly. This is a teaching from one of the great Tibetan masters of the last century. His name was Dilgo Kense Rinpoche. He said, When a rainbow appears, we see many beautiful colors. Yet a rainbow is not something we can clothe ourselves with or wear as an ornament. It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thoughts should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be so enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly as they have been doing through countless past lives. (laughs) That image of thoughts tormenting us mercilessly (laughs) rings so true when we're not aware, when we're not mindful of the thinking process. With each arising thought, you know, and so many come, of course, in the course of a day, with each arising thought, we have the opportunity to practice and to recognize the wakefulness and a kind of freedom of mind as soon as you become aware that you're thinking. You know, and sometimes it's, it's at the very beginning of the thought. Sometimes it's in the middle. Sometimes toward the end. Sometimes it's after it's over. But as soon as you awaken from being lost in the movies of your mind, recognize that moment of wakefulness. Pay attention to what it's like having come out of the dream. Recognize the quality of mind, that wakeful, alert, knowing quality. We can take delight in that moment. So rather than being lost in a thought and then becoming aware and simply judging ourselves for having been lost, which is so common. Instead of that judging of ourselves for having been lost, we can actually take delight in the wakefulness of that moment. But we need to recognize it. We need to take a moment to appreciate the difference between the knowing and the not knowing. As we settle into a growing awareness of the body, of the mind, we begin to realize that it's possible to practice and to be doing the practice not only for ourselves, not only for our own benefit, but we can understand the possibility of practicing with the motivation to benefit all beings, ourselves included. So how does watching a breath or taking a step mindfully, how does that benefit anybody else? It's not immediately obvious that sitting here watching our breath is helping anybody. Well, it happens in two ways. The more we understand our own bodies and minds, the more deeply we understand everybody else. Because even though our particular stories are different, you know, we all have different backgrounds and different, perhaps, cultures and education, families, our backgrounds are different, our stories are different, but the nature of all of our minds and bodies are just the same. The nature of pain and pleasure, the nature of fear and anger, happiness and joy, all of these are universal experiences. These are the basic building blocks of being a human being. And so when we understand the commonality of human experience, the pain is the same, whether we're from America or India or Burma or Thailand or the Middle East. The pain is the same. Pleasure is the same. Anger is the same. Happiness is the same. When we understand deeply the commonality of experience, it gives rise to, compa- with, to compassion for the suffering of of others because we understand the suffering in ourselves. We can relate more and more easily to the experience of others because we know they're in common. And we can also honor the possibility for freedom in others because we see and honor that possibility in ourselves. So this is one way our practice is of benefit to others because we understand more and more deeply what we all have in common. And the second way our practice benefits others is through the transformation of how we are in the world. If we're more loving and more peaceful and less judgmental, and less selfish, then the whole world is that much more loving and peaceful. The whole world is that much less judgmental, less selfish. Now, our whole mind-body is a vibrating, resonating energy system. How we are of necessity affects everyone around us. We can't help but do that. It's like being on a boat in the ocean in a storm. One wise, calm, skilled person can help bring everyone to safety. If everyone's agitated, if everyone's confused, if everyone is fearful, very unlikely that it will find a safe harbor. And there's a really... Well, to me, is a tremendously inspiring example of this. And of course, there are many examples, but this is one that I just read about, uh, which was so beautiful. It was the time of Indian independence from Britain. And many of you might know that at that time, you know, with the partition of India and Pakistan, it was tremendously bloody, just a tremendous amount of killing between the Muslims and the Hindus as they were kind of separating, because it had all been one, uh, one country under the British. So in this separation, tremendous violence was going on. And the British sent in tens of thousands of troops to the Punjab you know, to, try to, to try to stop the violence. And Gandhi, by himself, went to Calcutta, where there was also this tremendous uh, violence and killing. And Gandhi announced that he was going to fast, even to death, unless people put down their arms. And the great force of purity that Gandhi manifests you know, and was known for, and that determination and that resolve and that place of impeccability and integrity and nonviolence. One man like that saying, I'm going to fast even to death unless you put down your arms, that the whole city became peaceful. So, what 10,000 troops couldn't do in the Punjab one person with those qualities was able to do in Calcutta. And it's just an amazing story, and of course, Gandhi in many ways was an exceptional individual, but it just points to the power of a heart that's open, of a a mind that's trained, that has tremendous beneficial influence. You know, in the world and the people around us. For me, a great shift in my practice happened when I went from understanding that my practice inevitably helps others. It can't help but help others you know, in the ways I described. But a shift happened when I went from that understanding to the thought or the aspiration, the motivation, of making the welfare of all beings, and of course, that includes oneself, but making the welfare of all the very motivation to practice. And for me, that created a much wider context much larger context, that connected the practice, connected our training and our lives to everyone around us, to all beings. And I would often articulate it at the beginning of a day or the beginning of a sitting with just a very simple planting of a seed. You know, may my practice, may my life be for the benefit of all beings. So it's like a dedication of our efforts. And that dedication has, for me, brought a lot of energy to the practice. And may I be liberated. May I be awakened for the benefit of all. So I'd just like to close with a teaching from one other of the... Uh -uh. Tibetan masters of the I think 13th century or so, his name was Tsongkhapa. He said the human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest gem. Cherish your body, it is yours this one time only. The human form is one with great is one with great difficulty. It is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore, set your aspirations and make use of every day and night to achieve them. This life you must know as the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore, set your aspirations and make use of every day and night to achieve them. The great gift of your being here on this retreat is the ability to do that in such a full and impeccable way. Um, Let's sit for a few minutes.
1: half breath
0: Do we even know it or have that sheet?
1: Now let us chant the verses of sharing an aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice